Tonight on the Purple Stuff Podcast, the spirits of the dead terrorize an old house. Well, I had told my husband then that I didn't want to live there. A message in a bottle travels across the entire globe. That is really amazing. I think it's a bit unlikely because of all the difficulties to get there, but not impossible. And a man can mysteriously summon the rain even when he's indoors. I've been a cop 40 years and I never ran anything like this here, never. This case here, there is no explanation. Join Jay and Matt for another dive into the TV series that still haunts your dreams. Unsolved Mysteries. Jay, we are going back to stack with a sequel to our Unsolved Mystery Show. I like that. Back to the stack. Back to the stack, man. I didn't realize it's actually been two years since the first part. Has it? Yeah, I thought it was last year. Apparently it was in February 2021. Time flies when you're 100. <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited to go back into it, though, because it's always like just a new experience, even though both of us have seen a lot of these episodes like thousands of times. <laughs> what I came to realize is that I remember like the big hitters. But when we start digging deeper, I'm like, wow, they aired this. I'm like, oh, my God, the show was airing in the pretty late 90s. Holy shit. Those minor stories feel new because those are the ones that you may have forgotten about. We are coming to the table tonight with six total, and I think I went with what people would expect. You pulled out some of those wild cards, and I'm glad you did because I think they really capture what a roulette wheel this show was. You never knew what was going to be in an episode. Sometimes they would really give a huge spotlight to one story, and then that little tiny story at the end was the one that really got you. Oh, absolutely. Like, you have one you're going to bring up later, and I won't spoil it, but I'm like, holy shit, I cannot <laughs> believe this is a segment on Unsolved Mysteries. But yeah, it wasn't just a straight shot of ghosts and aliens and mayhem. From all of us at Unsolved Mysteries to all of you, our best wishes for a safe and joyous holiday season. May peace be with you, and may all your mysteries be solved. It was almost like the tabloids that you'd see at the checkout counter at the grocery store Sometimes it got real schlocky. Like you remember the ghost stories and the aliens and this and that. And sometimes you don't remember those really, oh, come on, this is tabloid stuff. Well, what it is, is that the kind of like online culture surrounding this show is very much weekly world news. But right. what you're saying is that it's not just weekly world news. It's also Star and the Inquirer. And it was. Last week, we presented the poignant story of Jim Meade, a helicopter pilot who was injured in Vietnam. Eventually, he made a startling recovery and for 15 years searched for the nurse who taught him how to walk and talk again. And this actually is one of our most requested sequel shows. We kind of know that this one's going to hit because people have been after us to do a part two. Yeah, we've had a lot of requests for this one. And hey, you're not twisting our arms. Yes. So let's get started. I think it's my turn, right? That it is, Matt. 
All right, here's my first Unsolved Mysteries segment. In the tiny hamlet of Fish Springs, Nevada, stands a 120-year-old Kansas-style farmhouse. It was originally built next to a graveyard in Virginia City and has been moved three times. Some people find it very odd that the house has managed to survive for more than a century. Others believe the explanation is simple. They say this house is haunted. From Season 3, Episode 16, let's talk about the segment that they call Samuel's Ghost. All right. This is more famously known as the Kelsey House segment. It's the story of an old house allegedly haunted by God, not even just one ghost, but like a freaking army of ghosts, Jay. <laughs> it was. This is a bonanza by Unsolved Mystery Standards. Just this perfect mix of really creepy shit and absolute ridiculousness. Yeah. So you've got this family, the Kelseys. I think it's like mom, dad, and daughter. And they move into this old house. And soon enough, they are rocked by spirits. There are footsteps. There are noises. And then the daughter is telling stories about how she's seeing ghosts and they're levitating her bed. In memory, but I just remember laying there in my bed. It seemed like my whole bed was just like floating. You didn't mention that this house was 120 years old and it was originally built next to a graveyard and it was moved three times. You know, it's weird when they move houses. I always got a kick out of that. I'm like, how did you move the house? They moved that old 100-year-old shack? That doesn't even seem possible, but okay, I'll take your word for it. You're right in that it is extremely old. If there was any house that was going to be haunted, it was this one. And they're showing the ghosts. This is one of the segments where it's not just like you hear a testimony. They put ghosts in the reenactment, those like grayish, blue, semi-translucent people. I love that. Oh, it's the best. I just woken up for, for some reason. I don't know why. And... I remember I rolled over and I looked at my bedroom door and I saw this little boy. He looked like he was sad. And the man, he just looked like he was really concerned. And it was just only there for a few seconds, but then it, it just like disappeared. It was weird. Even now, as an adult, trying to watch this segment alone at night, I got to admit, it hit me. Really? This one got you? Well, it's not so much that, like, I think the story is so scary, but it just puts you in that mindset that a ghost could just materialize right in my room right now, because that's essentially what they're saying can happen. The way they depict the ghosts, especially back then, even though it was cruder than the technology we have now, it actually felt more real. Jim and Susan Kelsey often heard strange footsteps approaching their daughter's bedroom. They were concerned for her safety. In desperation, the Kelseys decided to call in a local man, Daniel Martin, who had a reputation as a psychic. This is a crazy story, but does take a few ridiculous turns. Did you catch the part with the psychic? Oh, of course. The older guy who just sits on the couch and, and oh my he God. has communications with the so, ghosts. <laughs> what a scam. So they hire a psychic to come in and figure out what's going on. He visits the house. Then he goes home, puts himself in a trance, and according to him, communicates with the spirits and figures out what their deal is. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? This guy, they pay him to go home and take a nap and just make up some bullshit. 
After visiting the house, Martin returned to his home and put himself into a deep trance. Incredibly, Martin says that while he was in the trance, he met the Kelsey's ghost. I contacted an entity that appeared to me as a, as a sailing man. That's what came to my mind. He had the mustache. And at that time, I asked him, who are you? And he told me his name was Samuel. And by the way, he, he gets hired twice because the house ends up getting like re-haunted by another family. So they bring the psychic yeah. back and he takes another nap on his fucking chair. Did they leave his magnet on the refrigerator? <laughs> it worked out so well. I mean, we're still haunted. Let's call the same psychic back in. Yeah. Like if you guys happen to need a, a psychic to communicate with your ghost, we left the magnet on the fridge. So the Kelsey's here, they move out, but they still own the house and they rent it to another family. And wouldn't you know it, they get haunted too by I different guess. ghosts. What are the chances? What are the chances? And the family's young son is literally chased out of the house by these like moaning noises. Mm. And when he looks back at the front door, he sees in the side window that there's an old man looking at him. I didn't ran out the door. When I got out, I... When I was inside my driveway, there was all this banging of the screen door. And then, for some reason, I looked over to the window, and I saw this old guy, and then he had this grin on his face. A smirky grin, not like a real mean one, like he was trying to be mean. I have to stop you, because what you're saying right now can't hold a candle to the amount of passion that you've had over the years describing this scene and the effect it had on you. I've had to hear this. Sometimes you've heard the story five times in a night. Yeah, <laughs> you've been waiting to talk about this moment. And you know, I'll cop to something. I do have a tendency to tell stories as if you haven't already heard them before. So I'm sure you're getting a little tired of hearing about the Kelsey House ghost. But, okay, here's the thing about the guy. Yeah, the guy's face shows up in the window, and that always left an impression on you like it was real scary and stuff. But what the kid said really drove it home because he said, like, he had this smirky grin. The Robinsons became extremely concerned when their 11-year-old son, Garrett, began to have frightening experiences. So the Kelsey's move out and they say that their ghost, the original ghost, actually follows them. And this leads to a part where the mom develops a roll of film and sees the ghost in one of the pictures. This like creepy kind of like cowboy-ish guy with a mustache. When I went to pick the pictures up, I opened them up and I pulled them out and there was a man on the first picture. And I thought, these aren't my pictures. So I went through them, and after that initial picture, everything in there, the role was of my son. And I checked my negative, and the man was on it. If you had unexpectedly came upon a photo that you know you didn't take, and there's this face on it? We have both been in those positions where you are going through, like, an envelope of pictures, and you'll see something that doesn't really make sense. Like, I didn't take this picture. That said, it's a fucking close-up of a man's face, and they bring in an expert. It's like, yeah, that's a close-up of a TV screen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I detected uh, lines, horizontal lines, across the, the image. In conclusion, I would say that uh, Samuel's ghost was made off of a large television screen. So it's a mixed bag of a segment from a, like, do you believe it perspective, 
but it has everything you want from an Unsolved Mysteries segment. To most of us, this saga sounds incredible. But the Kelseys and the Robinsons take it very seriously. It is interesting to note that last year, the Kelseys sold the house to a couple with two children who bought with full knowledge of the stories of spirits and haunting. The new owners have been in the home for eight months and have reported no unusual phenomena. Perhaps ghosts, like many other things, exist only in the eye of the beholder. Perhaps. Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll. Everyone knows the life story of the shy teenager turned superstar. But what if Elvis had a twin? Imagine two Elvises performing on stage at the same time. It's not that far-fetched. Few people know that Elvis Presley was haunted his entire life by the specter of his dead twin brother, Jesse Guerin. All right, Matt, we're going to queue up Season 8, Episode 10. And this is a story about Elvis and his twin. He had a twin that I didn't know about. This might come as a surprise to you, but I'm actually not much of an Elvis historian. So this was news to me as well, Jay. He had a twin who passed away. So they're about like, I think, 30 minutes apart. And what they're saying in this story is Elvis is basically haunted by this twin. When Elvis was a child, five, six years old, he used to tell me that he used to hear a voice inside of his head. And it used to confuse him. And it used to scare him a little bit. And he was afraid to mention it to anyone. He thought perhaps it was his brother Jesse communicating to him, telling him what to do. So Elvis was basically like tormented in a way because he felt guilt. And there was a lot of things that they discussed about how he was so much of a creative genius and self-destructive. And they were citing that this twin may have had a lot to do with it. He was getting spiritual vibes from this brother. Music was Elvis's way of communicating with Jesse. The two had been bonded before they were born intrauterinely with the rhythm and the voice of the Fundamentalist Assembly of God Church, a very important cornerstone for understanding Elvis. My take is that it's probably somewhere in the middle. I have no doubt that this affected him. Of course it did. It would affect anybody. I think maybe some of the people involved in the segment to attribute everything Elvis ever did to this might be a bit of a stretch. Yeah, his twin wrote Jailhouse Rock. <laughs> and then they went into the twinless twin history and science behind it. This is really where the story, to me, becomes even more interesting because they started talking about how there's support groups around the country for people who have twins that passed away. Which seems perfectly understandable. Yeah. And so this is where I started getting really intrigued. So they're showing video of a womb and they got these two little babies in the womb and like they're hugging and then they're punching each other. And we realize that they hug and what appears to be kissing and even perhaps slugging or pushing at each other. We understand and accept today that utero bonding begins at the moment of conception. How am I just learning this now in 2023 yeah. via an Unsolved Mysteries segment? Exactly. I'm like, that's amazing that that happens. I love that. <laughs> Consider the case of Deanne Seitz. Born as an identical twin, Deanne became twinless when her sister Shannon died just five hours after birth. 
She may have died 22 years ago, but I can feel her presence all the time. Shannon's my guardian angel. She watches over me. So they got into another story about a woman who almost got hit by a truck. And she was saying, you know, I was driving, but my twin sister told me to pull over. So she started pulling over, but the truck still hits her. So I don't understand what the story is about. <laughs> I guess it hit a less crucial part of the car. So yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. give the twin 50% credit on that one. I could feel Shannon's presence really strong next to me. And then almost like her presence came over me and had me pull over to the right and then stop. And then not even five seconds later. Move over. Your car won't get as fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Wasn't there a place like a park where it wouldn't get hit at all? The security of her being around. Did you happen to know that they were interviewing one guy? He might have been like a doctor or a psychiatrist. He refers to the word angst as angst. I absolutely caught that. <laughs> and you know what? He was so eloquent that I am convinced that me and everyone else has been mispronouncing angsts for all of these years. <laughs> angst. Elvis never was able to resolve his psychological angst over the death of Jesse. You was... saw that guy. He has never made a mistake in his entire life. <laughs> By the way, I actually have known, believe it or not, two people who were by this definition twinless twins both of them have said not to the extent of like elvis or this woman who got her car almost saved from a wreck but they have said that they felt like a presence and they kind of communicate with it man that is something it takes me back to the grady twins the grady twins who the fuck are the grady twins the grady twins in the the shining Oh, of course. I, I'm thinking of O'Grady's because we were talking about those chips not 10 minutes ago before we started recording. <laughs> it always goes back to the chips. For now, medical science has no valid explanation for the apparent psychic experiences of twinless twins. And though some might see twinless twins as leading troubled lives, the twins themselves believe that they have been gifted. many Catholics, miracles are an accepted part of their religious beliefs. These miracles can take many forms, but usually involve phenomena occurring before witnesses that cannot be explained by any known science. But the church is extremely conservative when it comes to officially recognizing a miracle. To date, only a handful have been seriously investigated, and only three in this century have been authenticated. Okay, let's talk about The Miracle Cross, also known as The Blinking Crucifix, Season 2, Episode 2. This is from 1989. It was the story of a giant Jesus crucifix hanging in a Pennsylvania church that was allegedly able to close its eyes. And it's not meant to be a scary segment at all, but Jay, I'm not kidding. This really freaked me out as a kid, and I'm not alone. Yeah, I could see it getting under your skin big time. Catholic imagery is inherently a little bit eerie like if i go to a church for a wedding or something there's a feeling absolutely you're 100 percent correct as jim looked heavenward into the face of christ he had a stunning surprise the eyes that were once open now appear to be closed 
When I first noticed that the eyes were closed, I was shocked. I didn't know what to believe at first. I was happy, but I was scared at the same time because, you know, you figure that God, you know, he did this right there while I was kneeling right there. So this segment, most of it is like these close-ups of the very, very battered and bloody Jesus. And it's practically life-sized. It's not an easy watch when you're a little kid. The sculpture is just so real looking. It just gets to you. What it reminded me of, the construction, the sort of like plaster cast person, was like the dungeon boat ride in Wildwood. Oh, it did. Yeah. So the deal is that I think it's like around Good Friday, a bunch of people in the church, they see that this Jesus, which had open eyes, now has closed eyes and they swear by it. So you have all these people like going up on a ladder like, oh, yeah. And when I looked up there, I couldn't believe what I saw because not only were the eyes closed, but the eyelids were, were moving and moving like this and, and all the tears were in there. And they got the guy who sculpted the thing. It wasn't the guy who sculpted it because he was long dead. It was the guy who did the touch-up. Oh, the touch-up paint. You're right. Right. Suspicious timing that right after this fucking <laughs> thing gets repainted, people are thinking that it looks different. Like, okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. I actually worked on all of the face and the eyes last of all. And when I got to the eyes, then I just painted them and put the color of the blue-gray into the uh, retina. The church itself would not acknowledge this as a miracle. Because when they reviewed video of the statue from before and after, like, it was pretty obvious that it was the same statue. Well, we have side-by-side -side footage. It's like Bret Hart and Lex Luger at the Royal Rumble. <laughs> <laughs> the Bishop's Commission reviewed videotape and photographs that showed the crucifix before and after the alleged miracle of Good Friday and stated that there was no convincing evidence that a miracle properly defined occurred at Holy Trinity Church. You know, there was a big thing during that time where statues were seen like crying or the eyes would be open and they'd be shut. This kind of happened a lot during that time. You're right. I think the two biggest things that happened in 89 were Batman and crying statues. <laughs> I remember the eyes were opened very clearly, the eyeballs, the white, the bluish gray. He was a live Christ dying on the cross, and his eyes were still opened. And that, on Good Friday, they closed. There is one thing I have to point out. There's something that I found a little tough to swallow in here. There is one guy who is kind of talking about the whole experience that this community had with this miracle, and he says that his five-year-old son summarized the whole affair by saying, said, What happened? He said, well, God closed his eyes so everybody else would open theirs. Oh, and I'm like, a five year old came up with that. Yeah. Like, who the fuck was this guy's kid, Hemingway? <laughs> I'm five years old. I'm Mama Juicebox, Doc Veda. <laughs> Fucking writing yeah. for Hallmark over there. Yeah, I don't know if that kid really had the wherewithal to come up with that. Slight exaggeration, but still, this is a very, very famous segment. If you've never been in a church, whether it's like Catholic or whatever, it is an experience. And when you're a kid, it's easy to get scared because let's be honest, you're looking at stained glass depictions as well as statues that are pretty disturbing for a young kid. So when you see this story on TV, I mean, that is really unnerving. 
Since that Good Friday, Ambridge has been visited by thousands of people who went to see the crucifix for themselves. But what really happened in the Holy Trinity Church? Miracle or hallucination? For centuries, the stories have fascinated us. In Scotland, it's the Loch Ness Monster. In New York's Lake Champlain, it's Champ. There's Ogopogo at Lake Okanagan in British Columbia, Canada. And finally, in nearby Cadborough Bay, is the legendary caddy. Matt, let's put on season eight, episode six, and it's all about a sea monster, Cadborosaurus. Good old caddy. This is about a potential sea monster that sort of looks like a serpent mixed with a sea lion or something. They call it Cadborosaurus, Caddy for short, the sea monster of Cadborough Bay. Many people believe this is the carcass of just such a creature. The computer enhancement gives us an idea of what it might have looked like when alive. Like the biblical Jonah, it came from the belly of a whale. When they found this thing, a picture was taken. This was the photo of, like, a fucking corpse that they pulled out of a dead whale. Right. So I'm watching it. I'm like, it's obviously a decaying animal. Like, it, it's probably something natural that's just half digested by whale juice. Amazingly, a sperm whale has three enormous stomachs. Inside one of them, the Flensers made an astonishing find. Instead of bringing out a big 10-foot shark or a giant squid or a a rag, ragfish or something like that. They came across this incredible snake-like thing. None of them had ever seen it before in years of whaling and flensing. They knew it was something different. And then there's that guy who claims that he caught a fucking baby caddy in a bucket. Through the evening, I could hear this little thing making quite a fuss in the bucket that we'd put it into. But uh, when I shone the light down at him, he just opened his mouth and hissed at me and you could see that he was quite terrified and quite put out with all of this. So I felt that maybe if we tried to hold him over a night that he might perish. So I just, uh, after a great deal of soul searching, decided to put it back in the water and leave it be. And I'm like, come on, that didn't happen. You don't talk about a hissing sea monster so matter-of-factly. <laughs> if you had something that could impact science, or you like discover an actual species, you're not gonna throw it back in the water, right? I don't know. Even Robert Stack is like, hopefully someday somebody will catch a caddy and not throw it overboard. <laughs> the skeletal structure is similar to that of a snake. A caddy seven meters long would probably have at least 360 vertebrae. That would give the creature enough flexibility to form the signature hoop so frequently mentioned by eyewitnesses. I like the one woman who, I can't remember if she saw a live version or the dead one from the photograph, but she's like, oh, I, I saw it and the smell was just terrible. The odor from it was just incredible. It was permeated, it made you want to vomit. Yeah, I think that was the one that popped his head up and she was walking her dog. Oh yeah, her. <laughs> So she was uh, quite a character, but I have to say, I'm a good bullshit sniffer. I think she really had an encounter with this thing. Finally, I pulled her and pulled her, and she got closer. And as I turned to look down, I saw this face looking at me. And it was uh, shaped like a horse face. 
and there were eyes that were like a snake. And as I, I looked at it, it looked at me, and then it dropped its head below the cliff. You never know. The ocean's a big place. It is a big place, and I think out of all of the sea monsters and monsters on Unsolved Mysteries, this one seems like the most plausible. The way these people described seeing it, it didn't seem like much of a stretch. Yeah, I agree. I mean, maybe calling it a horse-headed snake is... is <laughs> a little tougher to swallow, but I wouldn't discount someone's testimony if they saw something wiggling around in the ocean, sure. Skeptics abound, outnumbered perhaps only by believers. Doubters claim caddy eyewitnesses are mistaken. What they really saw were humpback whales, elephant seals, basking sharks, or perhaps a herd of sea lions. Hopefully the next person to get hold of a caddy will manage to resist the urge to dump it back in the bay. Perhaps then, this mystery will finally be solved. Suddenly, the air around him vibrated with a deep chill. Almost simultaneously, water began to drip from the living room walls. Don fell into an eerie, trance-like state. I have saved my weirdest for last here. Season 5, episode 18. Let's talk about Rain Boy. Rain Boy is epic. This is the story of what I guess we could call kind of like a demonic possession, right? You got this dude, Don Decker. He's in prison, and they let him out for a week to attend his abusive grandfather's funeral. And I guess the uh, implication is that the spirit of bad grandpa started haunting him. Is that what you took from this? Yes, yes, that's definitely the idea. But it's so easy to kind of uh, push that aside as the story rolls on. Yeah, the grandpa kind of becomes a non-factor as we get into this. What happens is this guy, while he's out of prison for a week, goes over to his friend's house and out of nowhere, the walls are covered with water and it's literally drizzling inside the house. Jeannie? Yeah? Have you got water running back there? No. Come take a look at this. We've got a leak. And as unbelievable as that seems, these weird indoor storms actually seem to follow him wherever he goes. Like, they're in a pizzeria and it's raining. Oh my God. Oh my God. We <gasps> sit in there. This is what a couple seconds later, there's water all over the pizzeria you too. Have, you have a crucifix? Hey. You have a crucifix? No, I've never seen anything like that happen no. in my life. This one felt the most like an episode of Tales from the Dark Side. Well, first of all, it's literally longer than an episode of Tales from the Dark Side. I'm like, I apologize to you when I picked this one. I'm like, Jay, I'm sorry. This segment is like 60 fucking hours long. Never apologize for Rain Boy. This one is amazing. So this pizza parlor was across the street from where this guy lived. And they went over there. They're thinking he's possessed. So I went in the cash register. I had a crucifix there. I took it out, put it on him. And the minute, you know, I put it on him, touched the skin, and he got burned. It burned. Just leave Cross it burned leave it him, and it turned oh, black. This boy is possessed. You have to call, you have to call the church. You have to have the priest come and look at him. This guy's possessed. Let me get my crucifix. You guys got to call a priest right now. I'm like, oh my God, this is like an episode of Tales from the Crypt. Who has a crucifix? Oh, I have one in the cash register. 
Speaking of crucifixes, so the guy goes back to jail and he's continuing to make it rain in the jail. So they bring in, I guess he's a preacher. I don't know that he was like working for the church in any official capacity, but he was a man of God and he performed essentially an exorcism. And like, he believes it too, apparently. He was possessed. There's no doubt in my mind. There is no way that a human being could do what he did in that room. There's no way that he did anything but what he did was spiritual, and it wasn't of God. Guaranteed, it was not of God. It's really hard to believe, but there are so many witnesses. I think they talked to eight people in this segment, and four of them are cops. So it's like, how could they all be in on a big con? Something had to have happened. I've been a cop 40 years, and I never ran anything like this here, never. I mean, there's always an explanation when something happens. If you got investigated, you come up with something, this is why it happened this case here there is no explanation this is what really gets me about it is that he was claiming that he was like a weather wizard and he could like harness water but the chief of police or whoever <laughs> he got like water on his shirt it wasn't raining in his office there was just like a patch of water on his shirt yeah come in excuse me warden i was just down talking to i Gregory. didn't know what was going on in the officer told me to look at my shirt. It's a brand new shirt. And right here on about the center of my sternum, about four inches long, two inches wide, I was just saturated with water. Oh, I looked down and there's a, a big splotch of water on my shirt. I'm like, really? That's a <laughs> flimsy, but okay. Yeah, he thinks it's like prime evidence right there that this kid is possessed. I would definitely believe that the guy and his two friends were lying. And maybe I could believe that they had a friend who was a cop who also lied. But to believe that all of these people were lying is impossible. So what the hell was going on? Because clearly it wasn't really raining. It was raining? You think these people made this up? I think the more likely thing is that some natural thing happened that they attributed to him or the guy was like a fucking magician and knew how to like throw water from his fingers or something we were standing just inside the front door and then there's drop a little water traveling horizontally and it just passed right between us and just traveled out into the next room that happens all the time did you notice too when he was getting the crucifix he would say it burns it burns and like if he was making this up i mean that's a big performance he's got to go through we're standing there, and I gave Mr. Decker this gold cross to hold. Just hold on to that for a minute. The next thing is, it's burning my hands. It burns! And there's no explanation for it. Well, I gotta tell you, he kind of lost me with that one. I'm like, that's a little bit on the nose, don't you think? Oh, the crucifix burns me. Yeah. The cops put, like, a bag on his head so he won't know that they're putting a cross in his hand and he won't be able to fake it. It's a fucking cross. It's got a pretty distinct shape. If you put it in the palm of my hands, I'd be able to tell that it was a cross, even if I had a bag over my head. <laughs> Rain boy. Is it possible that Don Decker, somehow mesmerized by the pain of a childhood trauma, stumbled into another world which none of us can fathom? Or was Don Decker perhaps trapped in some murky region of his own psyche? His power to do good and his power to do evil, locked in combat with Don's own body as a battlefield. After all, as John Milton wrote in Paradise Lost, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. July 16, 1978, 
Finger Lakes of upstate New York. Nine-year-old Kevin Reeder and his mother Myrtle whiled away a lazy summer afternoon with a little homespun whimsy. When you find this bottle, I know. Please drop me a line. Perfect. Please drop me a line. I sent this out from Elm Beach, Ovid. They signed the note with Kevin's name and address, then tucked it inside an old green glass bottle. Okay. All right, you go ahead. Give it a good throw. Go ahead. Good arm. Matt, this one is from season nine, episode two, Message in a Bottle. And it's about exactly what it says in the title. <laughs> so in 1978, this kid is with his mother, upstate New York. He writes a little note and he sticks it in a bottle, one of those big green bottles that you always see. Maybe it was like an old beer bottle. Or I don't know what it was. Oh, that was a wine bottle. I mean, maybe it was a 40, but I think it was a wine bottle. So the mother's with the son. The son tosses the bottle into the water, which was a lake. You would think, all right, this thing isn't going to go too far, but it wound up traveling to San Diego. In 1996, after 18 years, Kevin returned to his hometown. A letter postmarked San Diego, California, was waiting for him. It had arrived only days before. Inside, Kevin found the last thing he ever expected, the message he had put in the bottle almost two decades earlier. It was accompanied by a note from two strangers. Basically went from the Northeast to California. And they took the expert's opinion and everything. Obviously, it's like almost physically impossible. Right. So the guy basically says that it could happen, but oh boy, it didn't happen. <laughs> So the kid's note, he has his name, his address, uh, write me back or drop me a line or whatever. He grew up, moved away after 18 years. It was 1996. This show was still going in 96 doing stories about messaging a bottle. Like, Yeah, yeah. Were, I guess they were running low on mysteries by this point. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he gets a letter from San Diego. When I called my mother, the first thing that came out of my mouth was, you're never going to believe this. It says, hello, Kevin, I found your message in a bottle, like that song, at the beach in San Diego, California. I thought it would be funny to write back, pretty cool. It was signed by Rosa and Bruce, and it has a P.S. Where the heck is Ovid? Well, there's no return address or phone number. Like, come on, man. <laughs> Let's just say for argument's sake that this is completely made up, right? Yeah. That's all it takes? I can contact Robert Stack and I'll get on television by just telling him, hey, I sent out a letter 25 years ago and it just got back to me. Can I be on TV? <laughs> All you needed was a good story and they would have had you on. The guy, the kid who grew up and sent the bottle, he seems pretty believable to me. The problem is that they also interview the mother. Oh, uh, the mother. They had to have some kind of a sense of humor to bother to pick it up and open it, read it, and then, you know, send our note back, say, um, where the heck is Ovid? The idea that she was going to remember this minor event. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to talk about, how romantic she talks about this whole thing, like these fanciful stories about the bottle passing through Hawaii and seeing girls on the beach. Bobbing along on a beach here and in a gully there, and somebody picked it up and just threw it back in again. Here I go again. Maybe a little bit of heard some Japanese along the way or spotted a Hawaiian girl sitting on the beach. 
So they started showing the map and showing how this (laughs) bottle would have traveled from upstate New York to San Diego. They got an expert on global water currents. And this is the batshit craziest thing that has ever been on this show. I'm not kidding you. The length of time it takes Robert Stack to describe just (laughs) how this bottle may have maneuvered itself over 18 years to get to San Diego. First, the bottle would have floated out of the lake through the Erie Canal, into the St. Lawrence Seaway, then out into the Atlantic Ocean near Nova Scotia. From Nova Scotia, Dr. It is so far beyond comical. It's like 12 minutes. He starts talking, you're like, okay, you know, it's got to do this loop throughout. But by the end of it, the whole fucking world is covered in this red line to follow its trek. The thing went everywhere. I think like Antarctica might be the only fucking part of the world that this bottle would not have had to hit to end up in San Diego. And into the Indian Ocean. It would then move east. It reminded me of like Robert Stack doing the John Madden Telestrator, and he's like drawing all over the earth. We can't even possibly play the full clip. It would take up 10 minutes of the show. I did that YouTube thing earlier where you put it on double speed, and it still took forever. final destination, San Diego, California. I really do feel like the mother had something to do with it to give her kid like the sense of closure. He starts talking about how the bottle's journey mirrored my own journey because now I'm back home. I'm like, oh God, come on. Um, I like to picture it as, as a, a couple strolling the beach and just coming upon it and, and taking the time and energy to, to allow somebody to revisit their childhood like, they, like they've allowed me to do and also just to thank them for it. I brought up how some of these were the more minor stories of the episodes. I'm going to quote Robert Stack. He said, this one was the most charming out of all the unsolved mysteries. And you heard Stack say that. So you know that he loved this story. Please. First of all, he only said that because it was coming right after him saying, hey, guys, we admit this is uh, one of our smaller mysteries. (laughs) (laughs) Smaller mystery, but one of the most charming. Admittedly, the incredible journey of Kevin's message in a bottle is one of our smaller mysteries, but it is also one of our most charming. We're hoping Bruce and Rosa will contact us here at Unsolved Mysteries to fill us in on the final chapter of Kevin Reader's Magical Bottle. All right, Jay, before we do our thing, if you can indulge me, I have an observation about the series, and I want to see if you kind of agree with me. Okay, let's hear your observation. This is sort of an explanation of why it's so creepy to watch even now. When you watch that show, you are remembering a much different world where shit like that actually could happen. You walk around now, you just feel like you're being surveilled one way or another 100% of the time. Either there's like a fucking security camera on you, or the person you're walking by has a a video camera in their pocket. So when you watch this, it's like you're remembering the world where fucked up shit could happen and nobody would know about it. With all of the cameras and and the ability to capture anything at any time, now it's like every other week we're seeing 
UAPs and surveillance balloons and all this stuff. And it's coming out like right onto the news immediately. The difference now is that you have an internet to kind of say, well, this is what's really going on. Like you can't have Robert Stack on TV or the ghost of Robert Stack in 2023 telling you that that balloon is a fucking space alien because you know it's not. Yeah. The uh, internet detectives are not going to let something like that sail by. Uh, Different world now. A lot more information, but a lot less mystery. It is a different world. You're right. It's a good observation. I was just trying to pad the time a little bit, make it look like, you know, we really put a lot of <laughs> effort into this one, Jay. <laughs> do you want to go through mine? Do you want me to go through yours? Yeah, I'll go through yours. You had a great list. I really enjoyed going through these episodes. First of all, you had the 120-year-old house, the Kelsey house with the hauntings, uh, and the uh, paranormal investigator who kind of just sacked out on his lazy chair. Then we have Rain Boy. And then we also had the Jesus statue that his eyes were closing. Well, when you put it like that, it sounds so mundane. <laughs> what was the proper title of it? I believe it was the Miracle Cross is how they titled it on YouTube, at least. That's it. I don't think that there's any doubt. I'm going to state the obvious here. Rain Boy is the best. Rain Boy has won. Don Decker gets his day. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I actually wasn't totally sure you were going to pick that one, but talking about it, it's, it's, it, you really can't capture the pure insanity because it just goes on and on and on and on. Guy's fucking making it rain all over the place. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, he, he actually said he's, he's making it rain. He's at a strip club. Oh my God. <laughs> so much rain. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Rain Boy is it. I'm actually surprised because you're more skeptical about a lot of these than I am. What if he was a failed magician and he had a way to squirt water around rooms without people seeing how he's doing it? He had a squirt rose bulb in his fucking hand and he's like shooting water. I mean, it's so obvious. But you're right that I am more cynical about these things now. And I hate that about me. When I grew up, I believed everything. All of these stories were 100% true to me. 100%. And I wish I could get that back now, but I can't. I just think that it's not always black and white. You, know, you got to say, well, it could have been this, could have been that. Well, you say you don't believe these things, but you said that the fucking caddy, which has no evidence whatsoever, aside from an old man saying that he threw a baby caddy over his boat because it was hissing at him, is very plausible. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, speaking of caddies, one of your picks was the caddy, the Cadborosaurus, who, wait, where the fuck was that? Nova Scotia? Yeah, Cadborough Bay in Canada. Oh, hence the name. Okay, now I got it. Yeah. Keep calling it Cadbury Saurus. It, 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 his eggs are the Cadbury Sauruses. <laughs> uh, you also brought up Elvis's missing twin, Jeremy Presley. Very interesting. I did not know until seeing this segment, which I did not see as a kid. Do not know if I was watching the show at that point, but... I probably would have looked away during a random Elvis segment. <laughs> you also brought up the message in a bottle, which is just a treasure. We aren't likely to pick something like that again, where you just get these little slivers of nothing that they turn into segments, and it's just so awesome. <laughs> it is. Yeah, what are you thinking here? I'm going to knock out Elvis for sure. Do I like the sea monster more than I like Robert Stack? reading off a fucking trajectory of a bottle for 27 minutes. 
Oh, I have to go with message in a bottle. Of course you do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> message in a bottle, baby. I mean, you're not wrong there. I think that's definitely the strongest one. I failed to bring up, though. Obviously, Caddy didn't win, but there's a guy in the Cadborosaurus segment. He says it would be the biggest con game in the history of science. We have to isolate that and play it because his delivery of that line, it is so over the top, ridiculous. It's our view that uh, the animal does exist because of the total mass of evidence. If these people who act independently over a century time and 3,000 miles of coastline were in collusion, it would be the biggest con game in the history of, of science. There's no way that happened. These people are totally unknown to each other. He was on, like on take 79 of a Kubrick-directed Unsolved Mysteries <laughs> segment. It would be the biggest con game in the history of science. <laughs> and meanwhile, you know why he's delivering it that way? Because his argument makes no sense. Like, well, how could 10 different people see a sea monster? It would be the biggest con in history. <laughs> like that doesn't add up at all. Do you think these people would all say that they saw Caddy if he wasn't real? That would be a huge con. They haven't been in touch with one another. I'm like, yeah, it's a fucking local legend. The Cadboro source is on the fucking local baseball team's shirts. <laughs> I had to get that out or else it really would have bothered me that we didn't commend this guy for that. Well, everyone else in that segment was so downbeat. Oh, you know, I saw it look like a horse. Yeah. That producer was like, listen, you you got to pump some energy into this thing, man, or we're going to lose the segment. Yeah, this guy needs to be given the spotlight. It would be the biggest con game in the history of, of science. There's no way that happened. These are a little more work than a usual show because we have to go through a bunch of episodes to find the ones we want to actually feature. Mm. But man, it doesn't feel like work to watch Unsolved Mysteries is what I'm getting Yeah, at. it's a joy to watch these old episodes. So much fun going through them. I had a blast. Me too. Speaking of blast, you guys can all have a blast on our Patreon. Yeah, I'm going to blast that out to you right now. That is patreon.com slash purple stuff. That is where you can get access to our monthly bonus shows. And when you join, you also get access to all past bonus shows. And there are like well over 50 of them now. Get your earbuds out and uh, get started. So thanks for listening. This has been the Purple Stuff Podcast. I am Jay from Sludge Central. I am Matt from Dinosaur Dracula. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Purple Stuff Podcast.